welcome to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, I am Aaron Porter here with, can can you be the guest? Who wants to be the guest co-host while Nate's out of town? I'll pick either of you. Nobody's volunteering. All right, Tom, you've been the co-host before. So once again, the guest co-host, Tom Ryan, one of our favorites here for part two with Kathy Reynolds. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Tom. <laughs> now, do, do we, we really don't get to revisit the conversation we were just having. Is this, is this true? I mean, you're the host, man. I mean, you're, you're driving the ship. It's really up to you, Aaron. Well, I, I'm getting all kinds of accordion information as you were both in my office here. And Kathy saw an accordion in the background, had comments, and then so did you. So, so bring, bring the listeners up to date on how awesome and relevant the accordion is. I want to hear all of this. Kathy and I both are seeing your office through Zoom, and you have this prominently displayed accordion, which caught both of our eyes, it turns out. And Kathy, you said... I said that my dad actually played the accordion, and I have not seen one since I was a little girl. Just found it interesting. Right. And then I added that when I was a young boy, I took accordion lessons for a short period of time. I don't know, maybe a year, maybe two. Never became accomplished like you are, Aaron. So oh, I wouldn't, I am not, an, I'm, I'm no Lawrence Welk. Uh, <laughs> do you remember why you stopped? I moved on to the trombone and it may have had something to do with the aging instructor who dozed off during my lessons. I don't really remember, but, but like, like so much of my childhood, there are big patchy spots of, um, of deleted material. So I don't really know why I stopped. So Kathy, do you remember any of the emotions you felt with the accordion playing that was happening around? Did it bring you joy or pain? Cause a lot of people think it's just pain. No, it, it brought me joy. Actually, those are some good memories I have of my dad, which are mostly not good memories. So that, I remember him. I don't remember where he was, where he was playing, but he wore this hat, like a little short hat with a little, like, what's that restaurant? You know what I'm talking about. I, it starts with a P. You don't know. Okay, anyway. Is this a Texas moment? We're out. It's a Texas moment. And he had her on a red striped shirt, and he was playing in this band, and he he played the accordion. And it was good memories. He was a musician. So what I love about that story is that even in the midst of a lot of bad things, the accordion can bring joy. It can. It was. It's a cool instrument. See, nobody... That is the but first time... That's the first time that's ever been said in the history of the world. It's just say, I want to, I want to soak it in. Say it again. Oh, but I got, I got to jump in with Kathy and agree there. That it's a cool. I've got to totally agree with her. Um, uh, not, not my own playing, but, but when, when you hear a well-played accordion, it's a lot of fun. It is. I'll tell you the thing that most people don't know. Are, you're playing that game again, aren't you, Aaron? You know that freeze frame game you talked about the last I, I, I am still, yeah, that's my favorite game. Uh, I will, I will say, and this is something no one would think about. You know, when you're when you're learning to play live, you're supposed to be interesting. You're supposed to move. You're supposed to look like you're, you know, into it, having fun, whatever. And so that takes a lot of thought with most instruments, but with an accordion. If you're playing with a whole band, because it takes like movement to make the thing happen, 
it is the easiest instrument to look like you're dancing and moving on stage from any other instrument. Uh, so you might look silly, but also slightly cool. But on the on the downside, I used to lead worship with that accordion because that that's an acoustic electric accordion, so I could plug it in. And there would be times that the sermon would be over and the pastor, you know, you always have to do that closing little bit as the worship team comes up. So there's a seamless transition into worship. And he would be saying something really deep and profound to transition. And I'd walk up to the mic and then look down at the accordion and know that if I picked it up and tried to strap it on, there's no cool way to strap on an accordion. It's awkward. (laughs) And and I would just leave it on the floor, regardless of the rehearsal for what was happening next. I'd be like, yep, there's no way to get into this moment while strapping on an accordion. (laughs) So there you go. We've we've yeah. got the podcast listeners into the uh, the intimate details of accordion playing. Yeah. Well, I want to take our whole time to do what you're both here to do, which is educate us on some of the practicals of what Kathy was talking about last week, um, which is how to make a disclosure in an appropriate way without, well, see, I almost said without hurting the other person. That's not possible. Pain is inevitable, but there are ways to make it uh, better or worse. And it doesn't even matter if our listeners have experienced it or feel like they need to make a disclosure. Most of us have known people that either need to make a disclosure, are in the midst of making a disclosure, or will make a disclosure. And, And for us to be wise in how to be their friend and be there with them, is good for everybody. So don't skip over this just because you think it's not something you have to do. But, uh, you know, listening last week to your story, I knew that you had a lot of practical wisdom. And I know Tom has a lot of practical wisdom. So you guys are the experts. I just want to learn from you guys today. So let's just jump right in with your first thoughts on, okay, when somebody knows they have to make a disclosure. They, they know it's important. Well, first of all, why is it important? And how do they decide? Because there's certainly a lot of uh, wisdom in, in the world that says some people shouldn't make a disclosure. So what do we tell the people who are on kind of the brink of deciding whether or not they should and why it would be a good thing? That's a big question. Um. For me, my, my personal opinion, I, I really don't believe that a couple can really heal um, and find true connection and true intimacy if there are secrets. And I don't believe that most guys are going to find the freedom that they need to find if they have secrets. So for him to have healing, her to have safety, and the relationship to be able to heal, I feel like disclosure is um, necessary to me it's the first it's really the first step once once there's been a discovery um, there has been a decision to move forward in the relationship and for um, the addict to uh, obtain sobriety and recovery then to me it's the next step okay now should we should we make any differentiation between a person who has some addiction? So they've got some habitual porn use, uh, 
some, it could be love addiction all, or just a one-time thing. It's all in the same category for you or is it different? It, to me, um, from, the, from the wives' perspective, it's all in the same category. Um, betrayal is betrayal. Okay. Whether it's with a screen one time or, you know, over the course of a 30, 40 year marriage, um, chronic adultery, whatever the case may be, the reality is that she doesn't know until she knows. So oftentimes it could simply be, and, and I say simply, but I don't mean, mm. I don't mean to, you know what I'm saying. That, that uh, it's simple. It is not simple. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, it could, it could be pornography one time, not addiction, or, you know, just dabbled in it and it not be addiction. But I believe the, the trauma to the relationship and to the, to the wife is the same regardless. Okay. Now, I do think that the healing process, the recovery process for the wife and the relationship is different if it's been more long-term and more widespread because um, every couple's different. Everybody's different. So how they heal is going to be different, but betrayal is betrayal. Okay. It's still traumatic either way. Tom, have any thoughts on just when somebody's deciding and thinking, well, maybe it would be better if I didn't. Am I just hurting them? Is this just for me? Because that's usually what it comes down to with, oh, don't disclose. You're, you're just getting it off your chest and dumping it on them. Anything people should consider with that? Yeah, I think it's really important to pay attention uh, to what Kathy just said. Any, any infraction in terms of uh, trust and any violation of the bonds harms the intimacy. I mean, you just can't have genuine intimacy. And, and if that's what you're wanting to have, if you're wanting to have a healthy marriage, then when, when these acts are engaged upon, there's a betrayal and it needs to be addressed. It needs to be disclosed. It needs to come out of the shadows and into the light. Now, having said that, I'm saying it's really important to pay attention to what Kathy said from a partner's perspective. From the person who's needing to make the disclosure's perspective, I think there is a big difference. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. It makes a difference in terms of the kind of support, therapeutic support, that person really needs to engage to do a healthy disclosure and a healthy aftermath. So if I'm the fellow who's gone through a period in my life where I was on the road and in one of those trips I engaged in illicit sex and I got into an affair or I developed a relationship with somebody and I had a had a, an affair whether it's a one-time experience or or a, a short season versus um, somebody who's been engaging in compulsive sexual behaviors of various stripes and over a long period of time um, that's a different set of circumstances one way or the other. It, and, and I'm speaking as somebody who'd engaged in, in the compulsive behaviors over a long period of time, not the uh, singular event or singular season. Um, both of them need to be disclosed because if you're living in the shadows, you know, you're, you're harming the ability to be genuine, authentic people embracing each other as you really are with all the potentials then that a healthy relationship has. You've, you, you've cut those out. And I understand the voices that'll say, well, it was just this. Well, it was just that. From my perspective, that's of course what we do. Um, but, but why is this important? Because when we engage in these behaviors, they're symptomatic of something else that's going on. And until we address the behaviors, we can't get to the, so what was the something else that was going on? And that's what really harms the intimacy of the relationship. 
One, one more thought, and then I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet for a sec. Uh, those of us that are uh, sex addicts um, uh, or compulsive sexual behavior disorders, a new thing that the ISM, the International Standard uh, Manual, ha- has come out with. And, and um, Wait, What was that again? I want to... I wanna... Yes, yes, yes. Uh, compulsive disorder. sexual behavior disorder. Um, so every now and then in the therapeutic community, as Kathy knows, uh, there's an argument that will rage, well, there's no such thing as sex addiction. And um, really the standard bearer of research and, and, and treatment uh, definition for this whole movement is Patrick Carnes. And, and I heard uh, Pat one time say, you know, it's really unfortunate that we landed on that label, sex addiction, uh, because it's multifaceted. Um, so in the international community, in their diagnostic manual that's used to uh, label and diagnose and code uh, mental health disorders, they've labeled it as compulsive sexual behavior disorder. And, and I kind of like that, but it's a little unwieldy. Uh, but for those of us that are compulsive sexual behavior disorder people. Those CSPD um, people, right. Yes, exactly. There you go. Let's go to code language, which, which this whole thing's full of. But for, for, for us, it's, it's really... Um, an intimacy disorder is what it, it's, it, it's a thinking disorder. It's a, it's a feeling disorder. It's an emotion. I mean, it's a multifaceted disorder. Why don't we just it's, call it an intimacy disorder in the first place? Yeah, I, that's I a great hate the term sex addiction. I yes. Hate. Yes. And I, well, my clients don't get hung up on labels. Well, and, and, and now for those of our, our, our podcast listeners that are in spiritual communities, I, I so agree with you, Kathy. Uh, it's, it's an unfortunate label because it just, it drives us in several different directions. For some people, they hear addiction and they hear skirting blame. They hear, oh, well, the person's blaming on a disease model. He's blaming it on it's something else. The devil made me do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not the case uh, or should not be the case in, in honest recovery and an honest disclosure. Um, but besides that, um, we, we get to this this thing where when we put that kind of a label on it and we put sex right in the front, everybody has a story about sex and everybody's got a set of feelings about sex out of their own origin. And it can be about fear and it can be about disappointment. And it can be about hope and it can be about lots of things, but everybody has a story. And when you leave a sex addiction, we label the person who needs to make the disclosure. But in the church community, we also inadvertently label the spouse and maybe more abuse and trauma is heaped upon spouses uh, subsequent, uh, originally it's the partner, originally it's the, it's the man or the, or the woman, depending, it's the one who's engaged in the behaviors. But in the community, when we start labeling the spouse as the wife of a sex addict, quote unquote, that carries all this baggage as well. And now she becomes either this pitiful victim who, uh, oh, bless her heart, but she gets moved to second tier status along with her husband, uh, or, or she's seen as, well, what's the matter with her? What's her problem that he went that way? And, and it's just so um, wrong. Um, and so if we could go to intimacy disorder, it gets more at the truth of the thing, and it gets more at the complexity of the thing, and it really opens up questions rather than inviting us to labels. Right. That, and that's, and that's, that's the hard part is, I mean, intimacy is not a word that most people use in their daily vernacular, but, uh, okay. So I want to, you've, you've said so much, you've opened, yeah. you know, there's worms everywhere. The cans are open, the worms are out. Uh, 
I want to go back to what you said at the very beginning that said this determines what kind of help a person needs. And I know, Kathy, you have some to say about this, uh, and we don't have to get into any specifics of our conversation before, but a, a lot of people could read a book or are told, like, well, just, just disclose, just sit down with your spouse and tell them everything. And I think you're both proponents for hold on having other people involved that know what in the hell is going on is important. So how do we help people understand the benefit and importance of having an experienced person be a part of the process? Well, my opinion is it's just going to take our voices, just getting the word out there and helping people understand the damage that can be done if it's done incorrectly and and how it can actually be a catalyst for healing if it's done correctly. So, I mean, it, it has to be somebody who understands, um, what's the word called again? The new word. I don't want to say sex addiction. Well, let's just, <laughs> can we just say sex addiction for yeah. my sleep today? Everybody so, knows <laughs> that it's all about CSBD or CSBD oil, which is now legal in most states. You can get some CSBD oil and it'll make it all better. Yeah, it, it, it has got to be a CSAT, uh, you know, a CSAT, somebody who is trauma-informed, who understands um, how to keep the couples, the couple, as they are, or as they are, facil- as it's the disclosures being facilitated, how to keep both of these people um, in a relaxed body with their brain online so that this event is not um, stored as another trauma and it can actually be healing. Okay. Say that again with a relaxed body with their brain online. That sounds like something that makes perfect sense to you, but you know, that sounds complicated. It, it does sound complicated. And I would love to tell you, I understand, a, I, I understand some of the brain science behind it. You should have Jake Porter on here and he'll geek out with you all day long about all that stuff. But I know that Tom can speak to that much more than, than I can, since you are a CSAT. Is that correct? Well, I'm not a CSAT. I'm a PSAP, pastoral sex addiction professional. And I think you've got one okay. in, yeah, but well, no, 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 no. <laughs> if you tell the therapist that, well, uh, they rightfully not. freak out and, and they're right. I'm not, a, I'm not a therapist and I'm not, I've not gone through psychological or social work. Or but you went through the training. That's what I, I mean. did. Go, I did go through the training and I went through the original training through the uh, ITAP organization. So when you say CSAT, that's a certified sex addiction therapist. And I'm a big believer. I know uh, in my area, I live in the Kansas City area, we've got a, a handful of CSATs and they are God's gift to competent therapy as far as I'm concerned. And the certification through that, uh, through the ITAP organization uh, and that's the organization that Dr. Patrick Carnes started, and his daughter Stephanie, Dr. Stephanie Carnes, is uh, is leading that organization now. She's incredible. She anyway, really yeah, they're great people. And that training, Aaron, why that training is so important, or having somebody that understands that training, is that they understand the nuances of the addict and how the addict got here, uh, the nuances of the trauma trail and uh, trauma betrayal and what it does to a spouse, and then the dynamics of what happens in um, in a relationship that was already suffering. I mean, there's reasons how the couple got here, and they're going to need trained help on how to get through this. Right. Um, one of the things that will often happen with guys is that they get caught. And then either out of guilt, oh my gosh, 
you know, but now finally she knows and I felt guilty and I've been carrying this burden, but now that it's out and, uh, and I, and I can't get it back. I can't get the genie back in the bottle. Now, now that it's out, I'm just going to disgorge all this information. And for some guys, there's an immense sense of relief because this secret has been killing them. The shame has been eating away at them. And now that she knows and now that she wants to know, he can just let her know everything that's gone on. And you know what? There's a real sense of relief in disclosing these secrets and getting it all out. And he doesn't have to hide anymore. And he doesn't feel that immense shame for a short period of time. And it's immense relief for him. And sometimes after that, that quick disclosure, that sudden thundering disclosure, he feels better than he's felt in years. And at the same time, her world has been absolutely trashed. He has set fire to their home. He has brought down thunder and doom on her head, and she's reeling. And I've talked to guy after guy who said, I don't get it. I felt so much better, and she's in absolute shambles. Well, it's because he got some relief from something that's been building up over a long period of time. And for her, she may have intuitively known that something was wrong, but oftentimes she had no idea what was going on, and she's just had her dream has just been reduced to a shambles. So what, is the, what does that look like? Because do you do like longer, what, do you do weekends, Kathy, of this? It's not just a one-time sit-down thing. Well, it depends. Um, if they are local clients that are, you know, regularly seeing a recovery coach uh, or Jake for couples therapy or the partner sees me, then we will do the actual disclosure and um, letter format in a one day setting. But people fly in from all over. And what and do you mean? Do you mean like a whole day? What do you mean? Okay. Day. Cause, cause, cause I'm picturing, yeah, whole day. whole day, like in both of your experiences as you've done disclosure, an hour session is is not enough to just properly walk through this and right. prepare something. So, so, you know, there's, let me clarify something with you. Um, not all couples, um, the, the one day intensive format that we do where they, they, um, they do the disclosure and then we have the letters, which we could talk about um, at some point. Um, not all couples, that's a fit for them. Um, so, for example, if there's some other um, disorder, like narcissistic personality disorder or bipolar disorder, then we really have to slow it down and do things in, in steps. But it, 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 to me, to do a disclosure in one day and just leave it hanging there without bringing it to some sort of a close just almost feels cruel to me. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's a lot of work and it's a really emotional day, but the way that we um, process or we facilitate our intensives, they feel close at the end of the day. You know, so it's been the, the truth telling time, the, the transfer of information, the data that goes back and forth. And then we begin the healing process with the, um, restitution letter and then the emotionally focused impact letter and then the letter of encouragement if the wife chooses to do it. 
So pause on that. I mean, that's, that's a, the statement, okay, if a person has some other disorder, mm -hmm. then it, it needs to modify how this works. Right. But at the first step of disclosure, it's in the hands of the person who might have that disorder. And okay. some of those disorders, they might have been avoiding, uh, you know, there, there might be consistent things in their life that show they've got some, some other underlying issues. Uh, so how would you, I mean, uh, the, if they're a narcissist, especially, they're going to certainly have been avoiding ever being labeled as a narcissist. So how do you come by that information or what does a, I'm just trying to think of a person right now who might be thinking maybe I need to have disclosure. How do they put that into any of this information? Well, I, I, if I could speak to that, I think that that's, that's really why it's so important to have some competent professional help to guide a person in, term, in trying to figure out uh, what's really going on. Um, you know, in the, in the previous podcast that you and Nate did with Kathy, Kathy was talking about therapeutic disclosure. disclosure uh, and, and one of the things that she talked about was narcissistic personality disorder. And I think, Kathy, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you spoke to your husband's situation, said he's not NPD, narcissistic personality disorder. And and just for our listeners, that's I don't to label him that. <laughs> well, of course you do, and 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 I'll tell you why. Um, because I get that. But but for our listeners, here's the deal. There's a there's a spectrum. If you can think of an east west a spectrum of narcissism, uh, when I was really in the heyday of acting out in my addiction, I was high on the narcissism uh, spectrum, and and I'm ashamed about that. I'm not happy about that, but that's the reality. When we're in our addiction, we're very narcissistic. Right. But there's a line that some individuals have crossed, and it's usually because of early stage hurts that have been embedded in that particular soul and have never been addressed, and they cross a line into narcissistic personality disorder. And that's an entirely different kind of person. That's the kind of person that's really dissociated from their own sense of personal shame. It's always about them and you're always the problem. And that kind of a person's rarely going to actually find their way into a therapist's office and say, I think I've got a problem. Usually they're forced into because a spouse has said, I'm going to divorce you unless, or something else has happened that forces them into a therapist's office. And then it's going to take a lot of work. I yeah. think what we're talking about for our average listener out there is that the guy who says, I've got a problem or I'm really ashamed or I'm really feeling guilty, he does need to go find a competent person to help him ask some of the relevant questions first and foremost before he goes into disclosure. And there's, there's another thing, another dynamic I just want to voice really quickly because it's, I think it's really important for both the, the person who's the perpetrator, and I don't like that word, but it's a shorthand for the participant in compulsive sexual behavior disorders. I think that one of the, and for the partner, um, that seeing, getting competent help helps him to, to sort through what has gone on and to put together what story needs to be told and to make sure he's not trying to control that information, control that flow and manipulate the outcome. All of that needs competent therapeutic coaching. And if he gets that, it'll help him to do it because when guys stumble into doing their own self-managed disclosure, they either in, unintentionally forget stuff or they've got a narrow view of what needs to be shared or they're prompted mostly uh, maybe by a questioning spouse who's kind of caught on to certain things. Well, what about this? So he decides to disclose, but it's piecemeal. And that's called death 
by a thousand cuts. Every one of those disclosures, the subsequent disclosures become add on to the trauma, add on to the trauma, add on to the trauma. And whether he's intentionally gaslighting, that was a term we used last time, uh, or whether it's unintentional, it's just murder to the relationship. Yeah. It is. Very so, and you have to slow those, those processes way down and, and take baby steps. Even those relationships can heal and go on and thrive. Those, you know, I think oftentimes um, men who really struggle in, in that capacity tend to kind of be thrown to the wayside, discarded. And that's one of the things I love about our practice is, is we, we seem to attract those type of people and because uh, we're willing to work with them. They're not, they're not beyond um, redemption. So I'm hearing from what both of you are saying is session one of someone that wants to disclose isn't you know, some people might think, okay, I need to make an appointment for me and my spouse so that I can disclose. But there's a lot of things a person needs to work through to get to the place where the person that's going to be helping them knows enough about them. So they need to be having some some work, some pre-production work before the disclosure time happens. And I think that would surprise a lot of people. Talk a little bit about that. I, I would. You, I totally agree with you, Aaron. It, it takes that. And let me just say something, because right now I know that there are guys out there that heard what you just said and go, oh, well, you got to be kidding me. I don't have time for that. That's going to be expensive. I don't know where I find that therapist. It's. I, I get that idea of feeling overwhelmed by what this could take, and I don't want to do that. Stop for just a second. Take a deep breath and think about this. How much has it been costing you so far to live life on your own terms and to try and do that? Yeah. How much do you want a better life for yourself and for your spouse? How much is your addiction cost if you're an addict? Um, how much time have you lost? How much regret have you already piled up? This is an investment and yeah, it, it's costly. And yeah, if you follow the real model of, of uh, you have your counselor, she has her therapist, and then you find a couple's therapist. I mean, it can get crazy expensive. But there are ways in which you can um, get competent therapy, competent help. Um, and, and if you don't have it in your community, yeah, you go to Houston. You go find Kathy and her team. You do what it takes because... This is going to be really money well spent in the long run. So your thought cannot be, how do I get this over with? <laughs> There's no fast track. You don't, go to, you don't go to Costco for this. No, you don't. So the question is, how do I do this right so that my marriage, because if you're bothering to disclose, it means you have some hope of redemption for your relationship. But otherwise, why are you even doing this? Right. So if you have hope for redemptive qualities in this process, then doing it right should be at the top of the list. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that starts with motive. I think that starts with a guy that feels ashamed and maybe he's been caught and maybe she's started to catch on to something. And now all of a sudden he's feeling the heat and that's going to intensify the pain and the shame for him. But as best he can, it's important to have some honest conversations with himself and if he's got anybody in his world that he trusts to talk about what his real motive is in wanting to do this because a lot of it will be a lot of it's going to be getting out from underneath the pain and the shame but ultimately he also needs and this is where spirituality can be helpful if he's got a healthy spirituality that 
that, and this is going to sound cliche, but it's really the truth. That ultimately, this is about love. That's love right. for his marriage, love for his partner, love for his idea of what God is, love for himself because yeah. he's li- living a life that does not work and it's and it's costing himself as much and and he needs to know that whatever he's going to do it needs to be motivated by love and he's going into it not to not to get but to give mm-hmm. uh, not to achieve an outcome but to surrender a strategy that hasn't been working yeah. and i would i would like to address those guys out there from a wife's perspective um because it can be terrifying i know they they believe She's never going to forgive me. There's no way we're not going to repair. She's going to leave me. And that is just simply not true. Um, The marriages that I have seen not make it, it is not because of any of the acting out. It is not because of what was disclosed at disclosure. It's what you don't do going forward from that moment is what's going to tank your marriage. Um, And in fact, I, my experience personally and professionally, um, marriages that have gone through this and have recovered are the strongest relationships, true, deep connection that, that, I mean, ultimately God created us for. That's what he wants for us. It's, it's just the means to, to getting to where you're living your best life the life that God planned for you. And so when, when I hear a guy say, you know, we can't afford this, I say, you can't afford not to, you really right. can't. And I would never ask my clients to do anything that I haven't personally done myself. I've been there. I've done that. And it, it, and it really starts with trusting the process. Yeah. I, it's, it's funny. That's another cliche. People might not understand that you can't afford not to. Right. And again, I believe that someone that's willing to do this does have a desire for their relationship. But anyone that has walked through divorce with people knows that the economic devastation to people's lives is insane. Insane. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I I love your story, Kathy. Um, Like the, it, this is a drop in the bucket. And, and so cost can't be the first thought. But if you want the logic behind it, this is still the, <laughs> this is not a problem compared to the problems that will come. I want to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and I want to talk about some practical, what have you both seen that has been like, uh-oh, that was the dumbest thing ever. And ah, that was beautiful. I love that I just saw that. So we're going to talk about some of the pitfalls and some of the glory when we come back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And uh, so we kind of always had our our, our, uh, separate music things going on. Um, But occasionally we would would write together, which early on, like when we were dating, uh, co-writing is not um, the best thing to do with your free time uh, because you'll end up arguing at, at some point. And um, over the years, we've worked it out to where, you know, it, it's not so bad to write together. Uh, <laughs> but we have three kids, so it's, it's more like, hey, I have an idea for a song. This is what it is. Work on it when you have free time, and we'll, we'll get back in touch in, in a week or so. And um, this one time, uh, writing for her last record, we had, um, we ha- we had a babysitter uh, watching kids that... that uh, she could come over and, and we just kind of try to write a song together and 
And um, she was saying that this, her last record, she wanted it to be uh, more personal than she's ever been before. And like for her, she's pretty guarded. Um, uh, I'm not quite as guarded. And uh, so she, was, she, she said, what, what can we do to make this, uh, you know, even more personal? And I said, well, let's write about the worst day of our marriage. And she's like, okay, um, I think I'm done songwriting with you. Um, uh, but but we, we started, we were like, okay. Well, we definitely knew, first of all, we knew what the worst day was, which I guess is a good thing. And um, so, so we just started talking about specific details of that day and how it's kind of changed our life. And uh, it turned into one of the favorite songs I've ever written, uh, especially with, with her. There's something really special about it because uh, this is our story. Uh, so here it goes. Not our whole story. It starts at the worst day. <laughs> there were good days before then. Do you remember that Monday when the world fell out beneath our feet? Both surprised that we had been so close to losing everything. Putting one foot in front of the other felt like it was such a long, hard step to take. We thought about moving and starting again But it was something we could never outrun So we just stayed And I wouldn't have it any other way I wouldn't have it any other way Gaining trust we lost was harder than just losing it but if we want to change it all the pain was a prerequisite so little by little a piece at a time we were putting back together what was left of a broken life it wasn't quick wasn't easy, but that kind of change isn't one that happens overnight. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't have it any other way. When we first met, love was a Making it last—that's a decision. It's a good decision. Now, as we watch the kids run through the yard. 
Sometimes I just can't help but think That every bit of what it cost Was worth it for this family Cause I wouldn't have it any other way I wouldn't have it any other way hey. I wouldn't have it any other way And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. All right, tales of woe and glory. Who's going first? I, I want to start with the woes because we can, we'll revel in the glory after we go through the mud. What are some of the dumbest things you're like, oh no, that was absolutely not the way this should have gone down. I want people to be aware. Kathy wants time to think. Tom? Well, not prepared for that. Oh, I do have a friend that, that um, I walked with uh, several years back. And, um, you know, when I, when, I, when I work with guys, and what I do is a ministry side of recovery, trying to integrate spirituality with healthy recovery. And, um, and it's, it's one of our core aspects is we never throw spouses under the bus. Um, we always are trying to do our side of the street. We focus on our issues. However, we're always having to deal with the other person and the other person brings their own baggage, their own personality, their own hurts and history before that relationship, et cetera. This, this particular brother was, um, in a, in a relationship, long-term relationship with a woman who had been very hurt before. And so she was angry, rightfully so she was in pain. I understand that. Uh, but given other factors, she was very explicit and very demanding about guiding, um, uh, getting out of him the truth. And she didn't have patience or respect for a therapeutic process. And so she engineered her own uh, staggered disclosure by uh, coming up with new categories. What about this? What about that? What about this person? What about that behavior? And over a period of time. That was a nightmare. Now, they have somehow made it through, but it cost them uh, a lot more than it should have emotionally, and it created a lot more uh, hurt back and forth than it needed to. Let's, let's stick on that theme for a second. The, the spouse's response. Um, often when a spouse hears, oh, this is, here's a disclosure, which, by, by the way, man, now I got to hold a bunch of stuff in my mind real quick. How does a spouse, how would you recommend a spouse comes to their wife or husband and says, say, I have a counseling appointment I'd like us to go to. Like, how do they prep them and uh, take them to that meeting in a way that is more successful versus less successful? I would say that, you know, hey, our friends are having a pool party. Let's go hang out with them. And then you show up at a counselor is a wrong way. <laughs> What's, um, what's some advice? I think in most cases, and I say most cases, it's blown up. It's a, it's, it's a bomb that's gone off in the home. And it's more like, this is what we're doing, and this is what time, and you're going to be there. That's typically how it happens. Um, 
but for the, the wife maybe who's had discovery um, and hasn't gone through this process and wants to, um, I would just say be honest and, and have a conversation and ask for what your needs are. Okay, Express. What, about, what about where discovery, because I've certainly talked to a lot of people that their spouse doesn't know. And so uh, how would you recommend that first step, uh, you know, their spouse might know, hey, I've been going to a counselor to talk about some stuff and maybe they haven't wanted to pry or whatever and they feel like, okay, we're ready to do this disclosure meeting. How, how would yeah. you recommend they go about that? Yeah. Well, you said it. they've been going to a counselor and they let their spouse know they've been going to a counselor. Well, what are you going to the counselor for? Maybe the question, well, I'm just I'm struggling with a number of different things. You can be as vague as you want to, but when you realize that you're going to need to do this disclosure and you're intent on doing it, I do think you need to set, be guided by the counselor. The counselor will guide you with the language to use. But here's the word if the, if, that I think is really important. If your spouse really doesn't know what's been going on, then don't have a big time frame between when you say, I need you to come in and there's some things I need to tell you. And when you go in and tell them some things, because sometimes that waiting for the disclosure can be as traumatic as what they end up finding out in the disclosure. So, so shorten that time frame, I think. Okay. And so the, the other thing that you mentioned, which I, I have seen so often is the spouse wants, when they're hit with this information early on, they want all the details, like every detail. Right. And that's so, where the spouse really needs to have a competent support and where somebody like Kathy is so absolutely essential because they need to, for those that want to dive into the dumpster head first, they really need to be coached back from that ledge. Wait a minute there, you know, are you sure you want to know this or somebody that's really been seasoned and been through it? Kathy, you need to speak to that because I, I just, I've seen women that have been so hurt by a very legitimate need, I, I get it. All of a sudden things have blown up or their instincts have been affirmed. There's been crazy in the marriage and, they, and they've, been, they've been told there wasn't anything going on. Now they're getting the validation. Okay, bring it to me. And I, I respect I that need. Yeah. yeah so I want to know right now. I want to know. They just want to know their reality. So um, to answer that question, I'm going to answer the other question about some of the dumb things. So to me, um, some of the, the least effective, I guess, early on disclosures are when there's not outside support, um, peer support. Um, to me, those are so much harder to do. Um, they, they both need to have a safe place where they can go. So for the partners, I, I highly encourage them. I know you want to know everything you're going to know very, very soon. When you have these burning questions, um, write them down and reach out and talk to somebody about it. Um, but I also tell them um, if it, because oftentimes they get really triggered and that's when the questions start. Um, I encourage them not to shame themselves because it's going to happen. They're going to ask the questions. They're going to get the answers. Um, and we always tell um, the husbands, you know, ask her, are you, are you sure that, that you really want to know this level of detail or are you sure you want me to answer that right now? Would you be willing to call X person, whether it be me or whether it be one of their peer support, uh, support group, would you, would you be willing to call them first and then we'll come back? And ultimately, if she wants to know, 
I mean, he can't keep it from her. We encourage him, go ahead and tell her the truth. But just, I think just having support along the way to help her, just to hold space with her until that disclosure is what's pretty vital for her. They're going to ask questions. They're going to do it. So, uh, well, Aaron, can I say something about that too? I think support is absolutely key. And again, we'll tend to shortcut that or we'll say, well, there's nobody really I can trust, or we'll just dive into sharing with all kinds of people. And and here's something I, I think is really important to keep in mind. Um, Kathy, in the last podcast, and when you were sharing your story and, and what a, what an awesome story. And I just so so appreciate you and your heart, your spirit, and how you and your husband have worked through this. I just really, really feel that strongly and, and respect you so, so much. And one of the things that made my heart ache was in hearing your story, when you and your husband got to that point of reconnecting and saying, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna reconcile. If I heard you right, there were those around you who were not supportive of you making that move. That's right. And, and that oftentimes happens. We have friends and they're well-meaning, but they, they, they mount an agenda. It needs to be this reconcile, or it needs to be that get as far away from him as possible. Why would you stay with him? What's your problem? And it's important to develop support that does not have an agenda other than our well-being. Okay. So for for some of us, we don't have that support and we're going to have to find it in healthy. Oh, let's be careful here. Let's all take a deep breath and pray. Help us, Jesus, in healthy online communities. Some of them are not healthy at all. And you've just got to have your wherewithal. But I know, Kathy, why don't you talk to that? Well, real quick, please recognize um, even communities that struggle with the same thing, i.e., oh, this is spouse support of other people that have had uh, a husband or a wife cheat on them. Those are not necessarily the best support groups. That's a group right. of people who are in the same pain you are in. Right. That you might reach an, a next step in your process, but if they're three steps back, you could very easily be triggered to go, oh, I'm back at that step. It's, I mean, this is a a critical and dangerous place. Go ahead, Kathy. I don't so much see that with the partners if if it's facilitated by a competent facilitator who knows how to manage the dynamics. Actually, it's really, I think it's wonderful to have somebody who's further on in their journey than somebody but the, fa- the facilitated out. is the huge That's part. the key. So make sure it's facilitated by a competent, trained person. I mean, coach-led or even therapy-led groups are, are perfect. Or even facilitators who've been gone through specific training to lead, um, you know, groups. I guess for the men, it would be sexual integrity or whatever you, you want to call it. And for me, it would be women who have experienced the betrayal trauma. Um, one thing I left out in my story last time, and, and when I went back and listened to podcasts, I was like, oh my gosh, I left out this huge part, and it has to do with support. So, um, you know, I, I had support, but I didn't share my burning desire for reconciliation. It didn't feel safe because, you know, everyone was um, anti-Conrad, that's my husband's name. Mm-hmm. So, um, it, it really put shame on me for, for desiring this. Um, it didn't stop me, 
but it just left me very isolated and alone. Um, but as God would have it, he uh, intersected me um, with an amazing woman who's actually one of our coaches for our practice now. And she has my story. She and her husband divorced. They remarried. She prayed with me um, for two and a half years. We prayed very specifically. She gave me permission to hope for reconciliation. Um, and so had it not been for her, um, it would have been very difficult for me to go through that. Um, so even if it's just one person that has no agenda, that that um, has no judgment, that will support you and, and um, your journey and just be there for you, it just takes one person. And when you say no agenda, that, that includes those who are like the uh, baseball dad who is living out their baseball dreams through another person. That's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, my, yeah. my recovery anger or my anger against my spouse, uh, I need you to live that out and how you act with your spouse. Yeah. That, that is an agenda. Yeah. And some people are in a place that they are able to do that with others. And that's, that's fine. I understand that too. That's totally, that makes sense. Yeah. Not everybody can handle that. Not everybody can, yeah. can carry the weight of our story as Brene Brown says, which I love. It's true. So I want to just to, to put a cap on the other piece of the disclosure part for the spouse that is hearing the disclosure. Um, be with someone that can help you slow down with the information you're receiving because you can never unhear or unknow anything. Exactly. And there are some things that in the moment feel so necessary that in five years are just going to be the trigger. And I find there's a big difference uh, with the men and women that I've known that receive disclosure and what information they want and what's important to them. Like for a lot of women, it, it's gone back to when exactly they were tricked. Oh, you said you were going there, but you were going here. Where were you going? It has a whole... It has a narrative around it. It absolutely does. And with guys, it's often simply acts. It's just sexual. What exactly did you do? Which for women, it can come to that too. I mean, there's certainly variations of all of this. But those things can then become a trigger later on as you're trying to heal. And those times, spaces, acts are all a part of the wound when it needs to be a part of the healing. Right. So... When it comes to asking questions around, you know, where were you going when you told me you were going to work? Were you really acting out? Those are good questions to ask as long as, as we stay away from details that could be potentially triggering. So, you know, where, did you go to a hotel? Yes. Well, what hotel? And then I will ask her, how does it benefit you to know that? How will that help you heal and how will that help the relationship heal for you to have that level of detail? Because if you drive by that hotel every day when you go to work, it's going to be very difficult to heal. You, you just cannot help but think about it when you see that, that, that place. And I, that was me. Um, I had some, some level of detail that I wish would have been left out of my disclosure. 
because it even to this day, if I drive by those places, it doesn't trigger me. I don't go into trauma. It doesn't bring back hard feelings, but it does bring the thought to my it mind. It creates a picture so for I, you. There's a picture there, and and you you have to then make that choice again to let go of that picture. It, you've got to forgive it one more time, and that's added on work that you didn't need to have to do. You said that perfectly. Don't make it more difficult for yourself. And if if I have if I'm working with a partner and we're we're you know talking about what she wants to know on her disclosure, and um, there's a lot of level of detail that you know I discourage, I'll ask her. You know, will you just be willing to just put that up on the shelf right now? Let's give it some time. Let's go back and just just pray about it. Real, talk to somebody else about it, and and then you can come back and decide. Um, do you really want to know that? Now, we've talked a lot over the last decade on this show about time frames after disclosure because at the point of disclosure, most guys are incredibly repentant and what is in their mind is like, okay, whatever you need, I'm willing to do. That is a finite frame of time. <laughs> right. <laughs> After which uh, a, a couple things happen. One is the guy starts getting bitter of like, well, how long exactly? How long is my sentence to be punished for this sin? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm is, sorry. I'm laughing because immediately a conversation with my husband came to mind. It, well, okay, then I'm going to hand this off to you. So what should the expectation be? And let's let's deal with the, you know, both of them are going to be thinking at that moment after that kind of conversation, well, what is right? What is the appropriate amount of time? Which obviously the answer is going to be, I don't know, it's, it's going to be different. But they both need to hear that there there is an appropriate amount of time and there is going to be a, a, a gradient curve of lessening of what one spouse might perceive as punishment. So what, what do we have to say to both spouses who are dealing with that post-disclosure? Man, you know, that, that's where it gets dicey. After disclosure, in the healing process, um, just that, that grieving process that they're both going through is just hard. And I don't care how much we, we try to support and we do support, it's just hard. It's just difficult. And, and I just encourage them, just hang in there. You can get through this. Don't give up. It's consistency over time. The more consistent you are over time, um, the, the faster that, that she's going to heal and, and you guys are going to heal. When it comes to time frames, everybody's different. Um, we hear, um, what is it, five years healing. Um, but I, I don't even like to say that because I, I don't know. I don't know, Tom, how do you answer that question? Right. I think it comes back to surrender that once the person who's making the disclosure needs to make the disclosure and that person could be a female. I think that's something that we don't think about a lot on this podcast and, and I understand why, but sometimes it's the female who's making the disclosure to the male partner. Uh, but, regardless of gender, the person making the disclosure is surrendering their control of what they've been trying to control. And they need to go all the way playing that out in their minds. I may lose this relationship. I'm making the disclosure because I want to be committed to this relationship. But in my commitment, and here's the seeming paradox, 
to have this relationship, I've got to be willing to lose this relationship. And that means I'm off the clock. It's really up to my partner as to what the time frame is, not up to me. I've seen guy after guy go through the euphoria of having the shame cloud lift for a period of time. And uh, at the same time, maybe he's in a group, maybe he's in a 12-star group, he's in treatment, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it is. And he's doing well. He's gotten some new tools he never had. He's being honest with some people he's never been honest with about. And so maybe the addiction actually lifts totally in his behaviors. He's, he's in sobriety. And then he'll go to his spouse and say, but I've been sober for three months, but I haven't acted at it for six months. You know, what's a, and, and he doesn't realize that what he inadvertently did or what she inadvertently did was they put their partner in the burn ward. They're in a place where the slightest movement of air makes every nerve scream. And that kind of healing takes quite a while, some faster, some slower. And if I'm genuinely surrendering to this process, I'm respecting their need to heal. And it's going to take time. One one of the things that a spouse will say, I've heard this over and over and over, and I've heard it personally is, so everything was a lie. So everything you ever said to me was a lie. So every happy moment we ever had was a lie. And my tendency, our tendency is to say, no, it wasn't a lie. It was very genuine. You don't understand. And instead, what I need to do is back up and understand that's her pain screaming. That's her hurt screaming. That's her trying to figure out what the truth is, what was a lie and what was true. And Kathy, I think you said it beautifully. Uh, and I said this to a guy just last week. I was talking to him. He's kind of a disclosure coming up. And his spouse is very, very angry and is wanting it and isn't sure she wants the relationship. But she's saying, I don't know how to stay uh, unless I know what I'm really dealing with. And, and that is kind of a conundrum there. Uh, she's not fully committed to the relationship, but I can understand why. She wants to know the details and they need professional help to guide them through that process. But I said to him, you can't get her to trust you. That's no longer your job. Your sole job is to live in a trustworthy way for a lengthy period of time and then to let God guide as God guides and the consequences are out of your control. I've, I've asked easy questions up to now. I got a hard one before I let you get into the glory. Uh, I, I'm going to preface this. I, Nate's not here. He's always the one that gets like a horrified look on his face when I ask a similar question to this. I think a person's behavior, they are responsible for. This is not about shifting blame at all, but it's a reality. When we deal with folks who are in these situations, there is, again, a spectrum of, wow, uh, the spouse was really amazing. Um, but the perpetrator, again, to use Tom's word, I wouldn't use it, but it's Tom's word. Uh, they had their own issues. So it was mostly on them. Then there are other marriages that were really bad off. And that the, the, the marriage that was already very broken, that was a part of why the perpetration took place. The, the problem is once this disclosure happens, everything gets focused on that. And so a spouse can feel like, okay, are we ever going to get around to healing the broken parts of the marriage that existed before I did this wrong thing? 
what do you say to that person that feels like they've lost all right to uh, a relationship that can have healing in other areas besides their infraction? Can you clarify something for me that you said? No, I'm just, I asked the question. It's now stands. Yes, go ahead. You said um, behaviors that were perpetrated as a result of issues in the marriage. Well, uh, and yeah, I'll clarify that, that possibly, uh, see, this is where it gets so tricky because it's not about blaming the other person. Yes, it is great. Um, I will say I've known marriages where one spouse probably would not have uh, had an affair. And this is usually more of like a one-time affair and, you know, it's, it's not this ongoing, hey, it's 20 years that I, I could, and I wouldn't say this to them, but I would say, yeah, that person probably wouldn't have done that, except this marriage was totally in shambles. But now they've done that, and that is now the primary focus. Yeah. And so then they walk through it, and over a period of time, they feel like they they never get to even hope for the marriage that was before, because that infraction, that sin is now the only focus. And I I have known people that fear that even coming into disclosure, like by disclosing, I'm never going to even get to work on this marriage in the way I wanted to. And I wish I hadn't done that, but now it's all lost, which I don't think it is. And I think you've said there's a lot of hope on the other side, but what do you say to those people? Yeah. So in respect to the situation that you're talking about, where it's not, you know, long-term sexual acting out that happened before um, they entered into marriage. And it was a one-time, whatever the case may be, as a result to the marital issues. That, that we are not excusing in any no, way. No, it's not, I, I'll, I hear what you're saying. Um, I still think it was their choice to act outside of their marriages and they really should have addressed it prior to that. But so what do you do with that? I actually, I actually know um, some, a couple that is in that very dynamic Um, and it's tough. What I think it comes down to is having a competent professional to help them navigate through that. Somebody who knows what they're talking about, who understands the history of both people and can can try to bridge the gap there. That's tough. And and oftentimes, I'll I'll tell you this, even when it comes to the peer support, there are um, women who have experienced betrayal, but it's not addiction. Maybe it was a one affair, short period of time, or even a long period of time. Um, There were major issues in the marriage prior to, and she still wants to um, label herself as the partner of the sex addict. And she's in groups that reflect that. And it's just not healthy for her because it's not her identity. That's not the reality in her relationship and it doesn't serve her well. As far as what the help is there or what to tell that couple, um, get the right kind of help. Yeah. I'm not a therapist, so that's probably more your your wheelhouse there as a pastoral. Well, I, I want to actually bring this to something you said the other day when we were talking. Sure. A, a proper uh, process will 
help the spouse who has been sinned against to actually gain more insight and empathy into the other person, not excusing their behavior, but actually understanding them. Right. Even if it is a long-term thing, even if it was something from their childhood, which understanding that is incredibly vulnerable, which brings intimacy, which was the issue to begin with. And so there, there's hope in that if the process is not just punitive, if this, this process isn't about punishing the offender. It's about healing the relationship. That's right. And if in a process done um, correctly, uh, there's assessments that are given to both parties prior to any therapy or coaching ever beginning. So from the very beginning, we'll know if, if, if there's addiction or if there's not. And from the very beginning, we'll know, does she have um, trauma? Does she need a higher level of care than what I can provide? Because if, if that's the case, then I'm not going to be facilitating that disclosure. It's going to be a therapist um, that's, that's more equipped for that than I am. So if it, again, if you get the competent help, the right help by the trained professionals, you have the best outcome. Which, folks, let's, let's be really honest. There are... There are people listening right now that have contemplated an affair or have committed adultery because you're married to someone that was traumatized and then you married them and frankly, your intimate life was non-existent and you might have spent a decade or more feeling alone and isolated within your marriage while being faithful and then... And then you acted out. And this all feels so hard because there's a story behind this. It wasn't just, I, I just went crazy and had to have sex with somebody. It wasn't that. Yeah. And it doesn't negate all that you've done to love and serve your spouse that might have been in a really broken, hard situation. Exactly. This behavior. And so what has happened in your relationship with the proper guidance can really bring about healing that you never even had the opportunity for prior to, but that takes a lot of surrender. Like Tom said, this is really about, you're not in control. Yeah. That's right. Go ahead, Tom. Did you want to say something? Just, uh, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. I mean, if I'm a listener on this podcast, I may be feeling overwhelmed, like, Oh my goodness. You take it a step at a time, you take it a day at a time, you practice it like you do anything in a healthy spirituality, you go, God, help me with what I need to do today. And you keep the big picture in mind. Do I want to become a healthier person? Do I want to have a healthy relationship? Do I, have a, do I want to have a healthy intimacy? And, you know, Aaron, some of the dis- things you're describing are a, a relationship that may be incapable of having that level of intimacy. Again, we need each other. We need competent help to figure out what I'm really dealing with. And that's where having competent guides, however we can procure them are absolutely essential Uh, for most guys. And especially guys that are compulsive around sex, we learn to be isolationists. It's part of the pirate monk creed, you know, we're loners. And so it's counterintuitive. We have got to drive ourselves into healthy community, healthy resources, talking to somebody who understands these things, who's been down this road or has been trained in it to help us figure out what it is I'm really dealing with. And and I would, that's such a huge part of Christian brotherhood or community sisterhood, because Mm -hmm. if I still 
am only putting all my intimacy into that one relationship. I'm putting it all on my spouse and they're going through the pain of disclosure. Right. But I don't have other appropriate relationships where I'm getting love right. and I'm getting intimacy. And maybe we don't know how with other men. Maybe we don't know how with other women. But we have to or else we're going to be constantly embittered against our spouse when they are not capable of giving that to us right now or maybe ever. Yeah. I, I, I think the guys that have, are needing to make the disclosure need support in two categories. They need support for themselves in terms of what they're feeling, what they're going through, what the next phase of growth is for them, that they're not insane, they're not crazy, they're not alone, they're not damaged goods, they're, they're worth recovering, they're worth pursuing, they're worth keeping on. But they also need some kind of support in terms of understanding what they're putting their partner through and what this kind of pain is for their trauma. There, there's a book, and Kathy, I'm sure you're familiar with it, Mending a Shattered Heart, and Stephanie Carnes edited that with a number of great contributors. And chapter six, for guys out there, look up Mending a Shattered Heart and read chapter six. It's questions and answers put, to, put together in terms of the kind of questions women would come up with. Uh, I'm feeling this. I'm feeling that. I don't want to have sex. I'm feeling guilty about this. I'm ashamed about that. And it's good for guys to read that chapter and it'll open their eyes and go, oh my goodness, I wonder if my spouse is feeling that way. I wonder if my partner is struggling with this. I had no idea that this might be a part of, this might be a consequence of things that I've done. It really helps a guy to take a deep breath, back up and see, oh, this is a much bigger thing that we're trying to deal with. And he learns empathy and he learns to take a breath and he learns patience. This is a journey and it's a journey worth taking uh, if both parties have some of what it's going to take and the support around them of what it's going to take to do the journey. All right, here, here's how we're going to close this. Both of you, I'll ask the question slowly so you can think of one. Give me your most encouraging story of a couple that you went, wow, I got the best seat in the house to watch something beautiful. All right, Kathy, you're going first. You already know who you're going to say. I love these. So it's a, a couple um, actually um, from my church and uh, – Long time marriage. I, I don't even know how many years, but I think 13 plus years. Um, children, um, very active in our church, in ministry in our church, and um, a history of just a really broken marriage. So all the while beneath the surface is an addiction that she was completely unaware of. Um, it escalated. She had a discovery. Um, it ended up being very volatile. He had a lot of shame. Um, he was uh, very aggressive in, in his anger responses. Um, in, his, in his trauma responses, he was very angry and aggressive. And, um, you know, our pastors brought them to us and said, you guys, we trust them. This is who we send our people to. We're asking you to trust them. Um, they went through our full therapeutic disclosure process. Um, he is in, uh, uh, coaching with our recovery coach. She's in coaching with me. They're both in healthy support groups. They trusted the process. And that couple is like rock star 
<laughs> recovery couple. They are so close. They are like the biggest advocates of um, disclosure therapy. And it was hard. It was painful. I mean, there was a history of, of acting out, but they're the couple that we want every couple to be like. Both of them embraced it. And, and she was a hard sell at first. At first, she didn't believe in disclosure. She was a, I don't need to know. I don't want to know. Um, but she trusted me and she trusted that if you really want the kind of relationship that you say you want, you want the closeness with him. If you really want him to heal and to be free from this, you guys have to get all the secrets out. And man, they're just, they're so close. They're doing awesome. They're actually going to, um, she's going to go through coaching and start coaching um, partners as well. So that's, that's my, my favorite couple. Awesome. I love how your face lit up just even getting to t talk about them. It is yeah. so cool to get to witness that happening. Oh, Tom, <sighs> you have kind of a quizzical look on your face. Like well, you're going to give an how, answer. How'd you frame the question again? <laughs> I want a story of someone or a, a couple that you think like, ah, that was amazing to watch. That was a miraculous work of God through two willing okay. people. Okay. Um, yeah, that's what I, that's what I thought you said. Um, I got to say my own. I got to say mine. It's not, and it's not because what I did after disclosure was perfect. I, I've actually probably put on a clinic of what not to do after disclosure. And yet, when when I engaged in in disclosing to Pam, my wife, we were 15 years married, and um, and it was guided by my therapist, and um, and it started us off as she met it well. Um, it's not been smooth. And I think maybe that's why I like this story because it's not a, well, uh, on the one hand, it was really bad. And then we went through this and then it's been upward sailing and it's just been great. Uh, and I'm not saying that about anybody else's story. I'm just saying it can be really dodgy and it can be hard and life is hard. But both of us brought to it a, a willingness to keep at it. And God has been very, very faithful, and we've been married 40 years. And I'm still working with a therapist, and I still know that my mind is like a dodgy neighborhood. You don't want to be there alone at night, uh, but uh, there is help if you keep working at it. And um, we love each other very, very much, and our family's been a beneficiary of it. And it's a story that I'm watching unfold continually, day by day. I mean, I'm, you know, Nate, it's got that great line. I got to remember that the road of recovery runs parallel to the ditch of addiction. And I use that with my guys all the time. I'll say, my friend Nate Larkin in Tennessee, y'all know Nate, don't you? And I'll I, because that's true. And I've got to stay in the middle of my road. My sponsor reminds me, Tom, your job is to stay in the middle of the road and keep going. And I can't do it alone. But as I do that, and as Pam does her work, we have a life that has been worth, worth doing. And uh, disclosure was an absolute essential. There's no way we'd be where we are without me having engaged her in a full disclosure. And she's somebody who knew I was angry, knew I was a head case, but she had no idea about the sex stuff. And it really was hurtful. It was so painful. She didn't sleep all night. Uh, but our appointment with the therapist was the very next day. And um, that, was a, that was an essential piece of support for her. Yeah. Awesome. All right, so if somebody thinks, all right, I'll believe all that stuff those two people said on the podcast, that Kathy and Tom, uh, 
where do they start? Maybe they live in uh, Poughkeepsie and they say, okay, how do I, how do I find the right person to do this with? What do they do? What do they Google? Well, for me, they would Google Daring Ventures, um, coaching, counseling, and consulting, or they could email me, Kathy at DaringVentures.com, and we can have a conversation. Okay. Yeah, I did know that. I think that's a great strategy. They could go to sexhelp.com, and I haven't gone through the resources there lately. That's the ITAP organization, International Institute of Trauma Addiction Professionals. Uh, they've got two different websites, and sexhelp.com is easily accessible. And then start trolling through all the links, the resources. Find your way to a competent therapist in your area. Find competent online resources. Uh, there's more and more developing, but the, but you're responsible for finding healthy resources. That is your job. If you're wanting to pursue this recovery, you can't just Google and then just click on the first thing or just take everything you find on the internet. It is good and bad. So you've got to go for competency. And I think that's essential. Yeah. And you know, yeah, go ahead. For the partners, um, if they're looking for help in their area, I would go to appsats.org, which is A-P-S-A-T-S dot org. Absolutely. Appsats, an awesome organization. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen especially, you know you've spent more time Googling bass fishing boats and you're never going to buy one. So take a little time to do it right. Geez, right. why do we even have to say this? Oh, hey, Aaron, you've got to let me do one little plug real quick. Oh, plug away. Because, you know, when you first asked that question, the first answer that came to my mind was my own. So I just want my husband to know if he's listening. <laughs> Our story <laughs> is by far my favorite love story ever. And if you'd like to hear that and didn't listen to last week's episode, go back and listen to it because it's amazing. And you know it's amazing if you have the audience of Tom Ryan while he's mowing his lawn on a Monday afternoon, (laughs) listening away. (laughs) All right, that's all the time we have today. Uh, Nate will be back, I promise. I believe we have one more episode before he and I head off to Scotland. And uh, Kathy, Tom, want to come? We get two carry-ons. We could put you in one each. <laughs> what are you going to Scotland for? Oh, we're going to hang out with some pirate monks in Scotland. Oh, that's cool. Totally I think cool. that's awesome. I can't make the trip, but I do want you to post pictures on the website of you and your kilt. Promise? <sighs> I, I don't. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I know it I freaks. Might, I know the very idea freaks Nate out of you. Uh, that's, and, kilt. and that just makes me want to do it more. I just have to find a discount kilt because I don't own one. But, you know, at the very least, I will steal a tablecloth from a restaurant and get some baby pins. I'll, I, I'll do it for you. And if you, put the, if you put the accordion in there, that would just be perfect. <sighs> Man, this might have to be when I get home. This is really, it's getting, I, I got to end this show before you guys ask for any more because it's going to get crazy soon. Uh, <laughs> So we will talk to you next time here on the Pirate Monk Podcast. I got
caught in the rush hour The fella started to shower You with love and affection Now you won't look in my direction On the expressway To your heart That expressway Not the best way At five o'clock It's much too crowded You know it's much too crowded 